If you're approaching a slot and you're coming at it from the left side on a blind and your dog turns left on the whistle, you're in a pickle. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Under the Arc. We are your hosts. I'm Zach. I'm Allie. And it's been a crazy weekend. We had a very busy weekend. Alamo Retriever Club had its first spring training day out in uh, out in Kyle. I had a good turnout. We had a lot of good feedback from some newcomers of the club who got out there and um, and got to train, got to work with their baby dogs. Uh, special thanks to the club members who worked that training day and helped out those uh, those new members and made them feel welcome. Um, I was down in South Texas and had a good training day down at the Ranchito and, uh, you were pretty busy too, weren't you, babe? Yeah. I went to a dog show this weekend. Parker got his, uh, champion title and won best of breed twice. And then, um, Molly got her rally one title, which was super fun. We had a good time. Awesome. 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 I wish we had more time. We'll have to go, uh, on another episode. Me and you can sit down and go through rally and, and all that kind of stuff. Would you want to do that? I would love to. I think rally is so fun and it's really accessible to the average person too. Yeah. And Molly's adorable. Y'all are both. Y'all are just an adorable team. I love watching y'all do that. It's a lot of fun. Some of the people who are participating with us walked over and were like, your dog is so cute. She was wagging her tail the whole time. She was so happy. Yeah. Well, I mean, she is. Molly's just, she's adorable. Hmm. So some quick reminders, y'all. Um, our hunt test, our HRC spring hunt test is in Kyle, Texas on February 24th and 25th. Entries are open. Uh, so be sure you get in there. We should have some uh, baby dog or started steak walk-ups uh, pending availability if you're not able to enter early. For those of you that don't know, we provide a dinner to all the participants Saturday night, and we'll have a silent auction, maybe a raffle, maybe a live auction. You never know. Just come and show up and hang out and have a good time with us. Um, we will be having training every Saturday leading up to the test. So we've got training this coming Saturday, same place out at Kyle at the test grounds at 9 a.m., Contact Mr. Jamie Reed to register. You can reach him at 432-290-2495. We're supposed to be out there this weekend, so hopefully we'll see you guys there. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, come see us. Uh, we also have Hot Dogs Try It Day, and that's the Heart of Texas Dog Owners Group. We are a new UKC club that's just getting started. And the purpose of Try It Day is to give you the opportunity to try it, try a bunch of new stuff. So it's going to be Saturday, April 20th in Giddings, including confirmation, rally obedience, nose work, weight pull, retriever hunt test. I think we're going to have some agility equipment, $30 for the first dog, $15 for each additional dog, and they have to be six months of age or older to participate. And Rita Marie Studios is going to be out there taking candid photos, which will be available for sale after the event, too. So that's going to be super fun. My little puppy, Eris, is all about her nose. When we go places, she sees the world through her nose, that's for sure. So I'm really excited to try nose work with her because I don't know anything about it, but it looks really cool. Yeah, for sure. So uh, check that out if you're interested. And uh, so let's get into it for the night. So this week we have Miss Kristen and Mr. Rody Best of Best Retrievers. And we're really excited to have them on this week. We want to thank you guys, first of all, so much for coming on and doing this episode with us this week. We're really excited to have y'all. Hey, it's our pleasure, Zach. I'm glad y'all started up this podcast. I think it's pretty informative and glad to be part of it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. 
Uh, we appreciate you. We have lots of questions. Yeah. <laughs> we have been so excited about this. Yeah, I, I got tickled here the other day. Brad Bowie texted me and says, man, it sounds like y'all are having a lot of fun with it. I said, yeah, maybe sometimes a little too much fun with it. But yeah, it's been <laughs> enjoyable. So, but, you know, I just real quick, you know, I want to just kind of bring something up that, um, that you told me the other day, Rody, when I first asked you about doing this, you know, I just said, you know, I appreciate you being willing to do this. And your response was, you know, it's our pleasure. Sharing knowledge is a responsibility that we should all strive for. Man, that just, that, that struck a chord with me because anytime I see you, whether it's at a test or, you know, if I'm heating up brisket at a hunt test for you guys or whatever, you know, you're just, you're full of information. You're willing to answer questions, no matter how tired and sunburnt you may be after a test, you know, you're willing to stand there and talk to us. And, and, you know, now y'all are taking time out of y'all's even to do this with us. So just seriously, the club as a whole and Allie and I just thank you guys very much. Y'all have always been so generous with your knowledge and yeah. information. You know, I think I remember going, I went to a lot of seminars and, and stuff myself when I was learning. And a lot of pros helped me, you know, kind of learn my way. And I remember, I believe it was a Don Romain seminar that the Waterloo Club put on. And that was something that they, that in his little handout, his manual to the, all the participants was something about sharing knowledge and passing it along. And I've always kind of, it's kind of stuck, uh, stuck with me since then. For sure. That's cool. Yeah, that is awesome. You kind of don't really need an introduction, but, um, you know, can y'all just give us a little background on yourselves and, you know, how, what, what brought you to retriever training? Oh, well, um, you know, I didn't really, I'm kind of one of those rare cases. I didn't grow up in a hunting home per se. I mean, my dad took me out with a Labrador a couple of times and, and I guess you call it dove hunting. The dog didn't really do much, but you know, I kind of, I'm kind of self-taught really with most of my hunting. I enjoyed being outdoors and, um, really didn't get into the retriever side of things till college. Um, buddy of mine took me goose hunting and I just love the interaction between, dogs and it combined with hunting which you know i had a passion for and uh it just kind of took off from there and and like you know most people I, I trained my own dog and then made a bunch of mistakes and learned from that and then i trained another one and then some friends kind of wanted me to train help train their dogs so i kind of started doing the part-time and then at some point it turned into a profession and i mean it just just kind of took off from there and she can tell her story because she kind of came along after we um went when we first went out on our own yeah yeah, I definitely got started because I'm married to Rody Best. <laughs> so whenever we started in 2006, I had been watching kids for nine years and we moved out here in 2006 and um, the boys were four, six and eight. And I would, whenever we made that transition, he decided, let's try to see if I, you know, if I could train dogs alongside him. And so he started training me to train dogs and that's, where it all began. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it just, it just got to a point where I couldn't, I couldn't do it by myself, and I needed the help. And you know, hiring an employee was scary, so she just kind of fit the bill perfectly. Well, and training uh, kids and training dogs, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, similarities in in the way that you raise kids and the way that you raise puppies, right? There is a huge. I mean, it is. A, it's very, very, very similar. It's amazing, actually, how mm -hmm. similar it is. I feel like knowing a little bit about dogs has made me a better mom. Yes, definitely. For sure. Yeah, it definitely got me ready to be a parent. Well, not ready to be a parent, but it helped. It helped things along a little bit. The only thing is the dogs don't necessarily talk back. <laughs> this is true. You can put them in crates. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
<laughs> so um, can you guys walk us through your program a little bit and your philosophy? Because um, like we talked about last night, yours is a little bit different some of uh, from some of the other folks in the industry. Yeah, so I, I, I've had I've done, I don't know, four or five of these podcasts. And I, I think it took until this one, you know, just now you asking that question. I, I made some connections that I don't think I've ever made before. And that was, you know, I've always said I have a knack for training softer dogs and um, that, that, you know, the harder, hard charging dogs are much easier to train because they have all the desire. You just got to channel it. Absolutely. Um, I, I think what happened was I was, I started up um, in the retriever department at, at what was at the time called Triple Crown Dog Academy in Hutto. And now it's called Starmart. And um, I, I spent four years there as a retriever trainer and, when I got there, we didn't have anything. And and I had only, I was completely self-taught. And so I went to a bunch of seminars and I was a nobody for many years. And so, you know, it took me a long time before I started getting quality dogs in. And I think during that time, getting all these, you know, dogs in that were just backyard breedings that didn't have a lot of pedigree to them. They weren't really strong with desire. It created the I had to learn how to train the dogs that didn't maybe have as big a heart as these, you know, fire breathing dragon field trial types. So, and then I, I think it kind of did something for me and I, I loved the relationship that it built. Once I took this dog that didn't have a lot of desire, didn't have a lot of want, but loved to work for me and have a relationship with me. Once we've turned it into something productive, it was just really cool for me to see us come together as a team. You know, you do your job, I'll do mine, and let's let's meet at the finish line. And that's what I always, I think since then, I've always enjoyed that process. I've chased a bunch of ribbons and, and you know, won this and won that and done this and accomplished that. But my favorite memories are the ones with the, the dogs that were maybe half as good, you know, that, that I had to work twice as hard on to get there. And it just, it, it, it may, it's more rewarding for me. Well, tell us a little bit about the value of a solid foundation. I mean, you can't. You can't build a house on a bad foundation, you know, obviously, and, and the same goes for, for in dog training. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the value of a solid foundation and how that translates into being successful in the field. Well, I, I, I think that kind of answers your your first, the question that Allie just had, and, and that is how our program works. And that's kind of what we base our entire program on, and that is a solid foundation. Yeah. So, you know, we believe very, very strong in a solid obedience program. Um, I learned early on that I could impress, you know, an owner when their dog went out and did a 150 yard retrieve, but they were more happy that their dog behaved on the, on during the week while they were in the house, their wife was happy that the dog behaved and didn't jump on them and didn't get in the trash and stuff like that. I was a little lost as to what was really, you know, the most important thing. And that was the dog makes a good house dog and, and a good family companion animal more so sometimes than being a, a good retriever out in the field. So we've learned to really stress that part of our program and spend a lot of time on that. And I'll let Kristen kind of go over the, the obedience side of it. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So whenever, um, back in 2006, when we first got started and everything, and I was learning alongside Rody. First of all, starting a business, having three little boys was challenging. We moved to a whole new location. We had no no friends out in this area or anything like that. And it was it was honestly a challenge on our marriage. And um in the process of that, um someone shared a book with me called The Five Love Languages. So I started, well, we started reading the book 
And while we're reading, and I know that sounds kind of getting off subject, but through the process of reading this book, um, he's training me to train dogs. And I'm reading this book about five love languages. And I'm like, man, you know, dogs have these same five love languages that we do. And so, and he kept telling me, you know, each dog's different. You have to like, you have to meet the dog where it is and get the same end result, but every dog is different. So you can't just train a dog or you can't just train all dogs the same way. You have to figure out, find the baseline of where they're at, figure out what, what do they love? How can I build a team with this dog? And the the key to that is a relationship. So by meeting them where they are with their love languages, we are able to build a really solid team and get a dog that wants to work with us, despite it being a soft dog or a hard, harder headed dog. Um, and, uh, get to the same end result. Honestly, I feel like we were even able to get further than what we could have before I figured out how these dogs think similar to the way that we do with the love languages. That is so cool. So can you give us kind of a breakdown of that? Like talk to us about what the five love languages are and then can you give us like an example of how a dog will use that in your experience to communicate with you? Yeah. So when the dog first comes in, um, we start with Honestly, we start by teaching them how to walk attentively on a leash and how to give us eye contact. And um, then in in the first two weeks of the program, we flood them with petting, which is is physical touch. Words of affirmation is praise. Gift giving is treats. Um, Acts of service is like interacting with them with a toy. If If it's just an obedience dog or if it's a retriever, you know, throwing stuff for it. Um, And then quality time is quality time. So in the first two weeks, yeah. So in the first two weeks that they're here, um, we're just literally, if they offer us a sit, we're petting, we're praising, we're, we're trying doing retrieving, we're trying all of these different things to see what are we able to get the most out of the dog with, which one of their love languages. So we call them rewards. Which ones do, does do most dogs? Like for instance, we have three dogs right now that we have a new intern that's working for us and she has three dogs and, um, it's treats, petting, and praise. And and that is pretty common with a younger dog. But what I have learned is like people, dogs that come from older couples, um, they have a tendency to be way more quality time. And I've kind of figured out that dogs' love languages are based on the way they were raised up until the point that they got to us. The way they received In most it. cases. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a really um, cool observation. Yeah. And so then um, in those first two weeks, we just informally teach everything with all of the the love languages that we're offering to them. And then and then after that, we take that and we start formalizing yeah. the actual training and, and starting with sit stays and down stays and play stays. But the first two weeks is just getting to know the dog and getting it to its full potential um, as a team. Yeah. Well, and if you're speaking their language and you're you know what they want, they feel more connected to you and they enjoy the experience of training. And then they're looking at you going, what do you want to do now, boss? Exactly. And then, so we, we kind of take our obedience program and we buy, divide it into three different sections. So we have the first two weeks is the, is that part of it. Um, the second two weeks is starting to formally like sit stays, down stays, and actually starting to teach them that it's really not optional because the first two weeks is pretty much all it's optional. They're just offering it to us. And then the sec, the last stage is the e-collar conditioning. Mm-hmm. And um, 
But I mean, they have, we've got, by the time the first two weeks, they, we had, we have gotten everything taught to them. Right. They have the understanding of it all. We just yeah. have to expand on it. Yeah. So you're starting with not pure positive, but primary positive, right? And then right. you, you right. transition into more control once the relationship is built. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So we do the primary, like we're primarily positive in those first two weeks unless they're being disrespectful. So we help them to have clarity and disrespectful behaviors are not tolerated at all. Um, but you'll get petting, you'll get praise, you'll get treats if you do, if you offer us behaviors that we want to see. Yeah. Even if that's just eye contact or that's attentive leash walking or it's walking up and keeping all four feet on the ground instead of jumping up on us, if that's a habit that they had when they first came in. Yeah. And this is this is a, a big step away from a lot of force-based programs. Yes. But what is what is nice about it is, you know, when you get to a hunt test and you you can't correct your dog, you don't have that that e-collar on them or whatever method you use for for forcing them to do things, then it's like a preacher's kid. You know, they go crazy, they go wild <laughs> because now all of a sudden you've got all this freedom. Yes. But our dogs, you know, they've been trained for the relationship and for the teamwork and not because they have to, because I'm forcing them to. So I, I think our dogs tend to behave a little better. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons, but I think that relationship is key. Yeah. I could say I've definitely seen that sitting behind you at the line. Your dogs have consistently had some of the best line manners uh, in the central Texas hunt test game. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I, I, I enjoy having a, a dog that's under control. I get so embarrassed and so frustrated. And I know there's people out there that do the same thing when they get to a hunt test and their dog embarrasses them. I, I feel that with just the slightest step out of line. And, and I've seen some dogs just be completely unruly. And I can't imagine what some of those owners are feeling. But it's, you know, it's very, very important to me to have a well-behaved dog, whether it be at home or in a hunt test or anywhere. Well, and you also, it's not just at the line, you know, I love watching you line a dog up for a blind because the level of communication there is like, I could just watch it for hours. It's so fascinating to see the two of you move as a team. So I can totally see that communication that you guys are building and how it transfers long term into a really well-oiled machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you're talking about things that you notice about them on the line, you know, for for those of us that don't judge. <laughs> we, you know, I, I'm stood back there and watched Rody drop a dog off the, off the rig and you can see the relationship Rody, from the time you pull the dog out of the trailer. I always say, and I'm, I've heard it, other people say this too, you know, it starts at the truck. Mm -hmm. If you're having trouble at the truck, you're probably going to have trouble at the line. And you know, when y'all get to that first holding blind, dogs are alert. They're not fearful. They're happy to be there. So it's, it's very evident to anybody that's looking and paying attention and knows what they're looking at that everything is it's it, there's a relationship there and it's just it's a lot of fun you know just to kind of echo ally a little bit it's been a lot of fun to watch that i mean it's it's teamwork it's you know you, you, the dog does the work and you're kind of driving the bus but you know if you're not in sync and one of you know your teammate is not willing to cooperate that day or it just it can be disastrous so you just have to have a nice well balanced it's about balance you know I, I still correct them and and they still know i'm their leader but i'm a fair leader I, you know if you do good i'm going to praise you a lot of trainers you know it's very easy to get onto the dog when they step out of line but they forget mm -hmm. to give them that 
little attaboy. All right, I'm proud yes, of that's you. What that I little want. fun bumper, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of a session. And, and I love doing that. Yeah, for sure. Well, and you'd mentioned earlier, you know, training soft dogs. So can you, can you kind of shed a little light on the difference between training a soft dog and the, the, just the, the fire breathers, man, the, the ones that, that almost seem to just choose disrespect when they wake up in the mornings. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, and again, I think it just goes back to my, I've had a little experience with them over time and that's kind of how I got started. But I, I, some of my best memories, I always tell people, you know, especially like when Luke was working for us and some of my other trainers that want to be successful and, and they talk about winning this or winning that. And, and I tell them kind of the, the story and they look at me like, you're crazy. One of my you know favorite memories is, is or two memories actually is a couple of dogs that I was successful with. And one of them was a, a, a show champion. He ended up being a show champion, black Labrador retriever named Chet owned by Mark Watson and, De- and Debbie Watson. You know that he wasn't exceptionally talented, but he had a big heart. He really wanted to please me. And, you know, doubles, he was pretty good at. Triples, you know, so he struggled sometimes. And his water work wasn't great. But he had a big heart. And we could work together. And we could accomplish things together. And um, the other one I have is a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, of all things, that I passed at a Master National. And he ended up being a show champion as well. And neither one of them were were just, you know, superstars you know in the retriever world but man they just love to please me they love to do whatever i want them to do and that to me was one of my you can take away all my srs wins and and master national passes but i remember those two dogs vividly and you know i remember getting on that last pass for that master toddler that last pass for that you know master that last series of master national i'll never forget it and to me those are the proud moments I think anybody, you know, with, you know, just some time and effort can train those, those fire breathing dragons. Cause you're just, like I said, you're shaping them into a productive task. You're, you're, you're simply steering that race car, but these other dogs, I built that whole race car. I built it from the frame up and that makes me proud. That's so cool. Let me, you know what, let me, let me finish on that question a little bit more. Let okay. me go into detail a little more because I really didn't quite answer the question. You know, the difference between a soft and a hard dog is the relationship primarily. That's really the answer. And if you want to be able to train a soft dog, you have to have a relationship with them. And I've trained a lot of trainers over the years, and some of them are really good about the relationship and others aren't. And I think, you know, you have to be a cheerleader. You have to carry pom-poms sometimes. And some people, some trainers don't want to do that. They don't want to, you know, cheer that dog on and encourage them. They want to be that that hard coach that just, you know, drives them and makes them behave and makes them do this. And that's great for hard dogs, but soft dogs don't work well under that. Yeah. And so I've really learned that the, the softer dogs just need a little more encouragement. They need that motivational speech that the coach gives before the big game, you know. I, I got to give them that. And then they go out there and, man – they perform at their best and we get the bet that, that, you know, that's what really enjoys to me is, is enjoying to me is being able to get their absolute best, the 99.9% out of them that I know a lot of people might not have been able to get. And to me, that's just special. Yeah, for sure. One of the things, whenever I get these dogs that come in, you know, I mean, they come in, they're green as 
they come in knowing nothing. So I get them in on the foundation side of it in the very beginning. And the dogs that are the um, fire breathing dragons, I consider those doers and they learn from consequences. So like that's their natural like way of learning is by doing things that, that you have, they have to learn con- learn with consequences. Right. And then there's the thinkers and there's a lot of overthinkers. And I consider those a lot softer dogs because they overthink every scenario. So you have to coach them through each situation to teach them that they can gain confidence in themselves and they can move forward. So it does take in a, it, it, it kind of, in a sense, takes more, a lot more work on the thinkers because you do have to prove to them that they are capable of accomplishing whatever the goal is that you're, you're working with them on. And then once you do it and you can see that the their confidence come up, it's just, that's like one of the most rewarding things for me too, is to see a dog that comes in, that's just an overthinker and nervous about every situation or, you know, just needs to be encouraged and proven that they have the capability when you can see it in them and they know that you believe in them and then you can get so much more out of them. That is such a cool way to describe that. That's a man. That's very, very accurate. Yeah. We have a dog uh, that actually is a good example of that. And and this dog came in, she had had some experience at another trainer. We don't have to say the dog's name, but the dog didn't have very good beginnings and honestly had been pushed so hard and forced so hard that it lost almost all desire to do anything. And Kristen spent a ton of time with her. And in fact, the owner was so frustrated, he was going to give the dog away. And Kristen said, let me try. Let me see what I can do. And this dog turned, she turned it around. And of course I took it after that and, the dog wouldn't even pick up a bumper off the ground if you dropped it in front of them or threw it or no encourage. You, you could encourage all you wanted. She was not going to pick it up. In fact, she was the reverse. She was scared of it. She didn't want to go get it. And so we had to completely reprogram that. And now the dog is going to be running faster. Um, we've already run it in some master tests, honestly. And and it was an uphill battle the entire way. I ain't going to lie. It was, it was twice as much work, but twice as much work equals twice as much reward. And so we both feel very happy that this dog that was not going to be anything is now going to be something pretty dang special. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's a difference too. And like kind of what he's saying is we do get some dogs in that um, would be twice as much work, but we can tell that they don't have the love for the game, you know, and we're not, we're definitely not going to invest if the dogs aren't going to be happy doing it, then we don't want to, but I could see in this specific dog, I could see, her heart was there. She just had past history that was causing her to not feel confident in what it was. Like I could see that she still loved it. I saw that the talent that she had, we just molded her and into who she is today. It's pretty cool. Yeah. You just changed the picture a little bit and she went, oh yeah, this is fun. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about my old dog, Addie. And, um, long before I ever even thought about trying to be a pro, uh, just, you know, just a backyard chocolate dog. And she caught on to things so quickly. Like it was, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. I was like, man, I don't, I don't remember this being this way as a kid. And I was brought up and raised around what I call old Testament amateurs pressure. Everything was pressure. They had water dog memorized cover to cover. And you know, it was, it was all pressure related. So that's, that's the environment that I grew up in. And when I got Addie, 
and uh, we started going through the obedience and everything, and and we moved into force fetch, and she did not take to it at all. She was shutting down, and I was like, okay, some something's up. I, I don't really know what to do. I feel like I'm kind of in over my head here. She's shutting down, so I didn't I didn't mess with it for about a week, and we just took nature walks. We hung out. We had a good time. And you could see it in her eyes. She's like, I don't know what you want me to do. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know what you're asking of me. And after about a 45 minute conversation with Miss Allison, um, <laughs> we, 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 we talked about it and we got through it. I just changed my tune, changed my tone, changed my posture, my demeanor and, and everything about it. And she, and she flipped and it took me a long time to realize that Addie did the work for me and she just, yeah. she just wanted that relationship. And, you know, I was, I was looking at it from a completely incorrect point of view. And once I realized that I was like, man, like you don't have to be a hard case about it. You don't have to be yeah. old Testament, you know? So I, I don't know, this kind of a, a you know where I, where I learned that from. Chris and Rody Best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I, I you told me that that day actually, and I was just like, oh yes, okay. Let me grab a notepad. But yeah, so so I guess indirectly, thank y'all for that. But uh, but yeah, it, it was a it was an eye opener for me. You know, going through that, thinking that I had ruined my dog, and then just a couple of changes in my posture, totally totally turned her around, and she gave me eleven seasons and picked up a few thousand ducks for me. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a great time, you know, so she was, she wasn't fearful. She was, she was soft, but you know, she was, she was brave. You know, she didn't have a lot of fear of anything. She just didn't take to pressure well. Yeah. And it mm -hmm. took me a, a minute and a conversation with Allie to really realize that. When we've talked a lot tonight about how good this, how well this works, excuse me, for soft dogs, but this works really well for the hard charging fire breathing dragons too, because no animal, no being wants constant mm. pressure, right? We, you, you nailed it, Kristen. I, I love that talking about the five love languages because all beings want to be loved. We all want to be told we're doing things yeah. right. And, and instead of relying on that old school, well, this dog can handle it. Yes. So I'm just going to pressure the hell out of it because it'll be fine. It doesn't need all that. You give it something that maybe it didn't even know that it wanted or that it needed. And, and the animals that you guys have been able to produce are so balanced it shows whether you're working a fire breathing dragon or a dog that was dumpy and scared to retrieve when you got it, you know? Yeah. yeah and I think the, the, that's the sign of a good trainer. I mean, we've in, in what, how many years, 18 years to see Oh six, we started and this is 24. Wow. Yeah. So 18 <laughs> years, we've trained a lot of people, a lot of people to be trainers. And the hardest thing I think um, in training a trainer is to get them to realize that you've got to handle each dog differently. And I know we all say it, well, it depends on the dog, blah, blah, blah. Everybody uses that. But a trainer has to analyze the dog and go, okay, this dog I need to be more firm with. This dog obviously is highly driven, can handle some pressure, doesn't mind getting some corrections, uh, and still wants to go do it the next day. But on the other hand, the next dog that you pull off the trailer and go to run, okay, this dog is a little softer. i got to be a little more happier with it. And, and you know, it requires a great, anybody or everybody wants to just go up there and, and I, I say it punch the, the the stamp on the factory line you know as the dog comes by just stamp it and the next one here goes another one here goes another one and put your tag on it, name on it whatever 
But you can't do that if you want to be a really good trainer. You've got to focus on that individual dog's weaknesses and strengths and make their weaknesses better and, and really, you know, use the strengths as encouragement and, and, and positively to them. And so I, I try to each day if I'm working with one of my trainers, because I train with, we've got three field trainers and I rotate who I train with. And, you know, if I'm working with one of them one day and I see them get a little firm with a dog, I'm like, eh, you know, maybe that, that, this is not a good time for that. Um, th- this might be a better solution. Or this dog maybe needs just, hey, throw that dog a fun bumper. Just did a good job, you know, after they come off the line with it. Give that dog a little reward there. Yeah. And, and getting them to realize that it's not all the same. Every dog's going to be different. You got you to gotta work with them differently. That actually kind of leads me into my next question. Can you tell us a little bit about some weaknesses or areas that you think could be approved upon when you coach and help amateur handlers? Because you guys, again, have always been amazing at sharing your knowledge. And so you invite people out to train with you on a regular basis. And so I know you have coached and helped a lot of people um, as they've moved through the hunt, test and field trial and SRS game. You know, with with the owners in the field, um, you get two different types. You get the type where the dog absolutely runs over the owner and has no respect for them. Uh, and then you get the type, the, 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 the owner that is just too hard on their dog and they need to ease off and back off a little bit. Their their timing is usually way too slow. They're, they're just not. I heard this saying and I repeated it several times. Uh, an amateur sits back and hopes their dog won't make that mistake a professional expects it and is ready and so that it speaks for timing because if you're running that blind and it's a tight slot blind i'm going to expect my dog to go left right there and i'm going to blow whistle and be ready or whatever and in in an am or you know an inexperienced because it doesn't have to be just an amateur it can be an inexperienced handler um, they're kind of going, oh, I hope they don't go left right there. And by the time they realize that they are and they react, it's way too late. They're way too far so, left. Mm-hmm. And then, you, you know, you got to know your dog too. I know when I went to Master National, when I blew a whistle, whether it be on a mark or a blind, I knew which way my dog was going to turn on that whistle because you have to know that. If you're approaching a slot and you're coming at it from the left side on a blind and your dog turns left on the whistle, you're in a pickle because when you blow that whistle and they t- they loop to the left to sit down, they're even further away from that slot than they were. You need to come in from that blind on the right side because when your dog loops to the left, it puts them on line. So there's a lot of little things like that 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 make the difference between someone with you know a better handler versus a more novice handler. The level of correction and when they correct. Those are big ones. A lot of people will sit and ask me, and we got this little buzzer that I use. I pull it off my trailer, and every time I give a correction, it makes a noise. So when I have owners out or I have the AMs that come out and train with me daily, they know exactly, you know, when I correct that dog. And the the tone and the volume of the, the sound that it makes indicates how high of a correction I gave. So, you know, when I'm given a harsh correction, it's obvious from the way it sounds. And so they learn, okay, this is a major infraction. This was just a minor infraction. Um, that was a long correction. That was a short correction. He gave that correction right at this point or right after that, you know, action. So it just takes a lot of experience. I mean, the, the people that run one dog, 
I mean, my gosh, I feel for you because when I get to a test and I run my first dog, I'm like, okay, I can make this adjustment. I make this little tweak here. And by the third or fourth dog, I, you know, I'm pretty much got this test figured out and I'm going to run it as best I can with each dog. But an M, they get up there with one dog. One shot. <laughs> you get one shot. And I feel for you because you, you, you're, you're thinking, well, my dog's never done this. And then, bam, they do it. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. So there's a I, – I would say there's a variation, but the biggest things are timing and when to correct in training. Right. Well, if you could, I want to go back to that slot scenario that you just brought up. Because sure. I've, I've seen this in training before. The old dog goes, they get wide or they, they loop to the left. Let's just stay on that. You know, you hit the whistle, they loop to the left and they're, they're way out of whack or in a pickle, as you said. Mm -hmm. And I see, I've seen a lot of panic at that point. Like, oh my gosh, what do I do? My dog is way out of bounds here, out of whack. You know, they're out of the fairway, however you want to put it. Are you going to wait that dog out? Are you going to like really, really take your time and let him focus on you? for the cast that you're fixing to give him. Cause what I see a lot is, is just a lot of rushing and impatience. And I think it's a lot of, it's due to a lot of nerves, but when that happens, yeah. you know, was that, would you encourage just take your time, make sure that you've got eye contact with the dog before you give that cast. Don't rush it. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll make a broad paintbrush statement here, but I would say probably 95% of handlers cast way too fast. I was hoping you'd say and that. <laughs> You, you've got to really Guilty. think about what your dog's doing. They're running about, you know, probably 90% of their speed. They're running hard and they're navigating through cover and trees and bushes and things. And they're looking ahead and you hit a whistle. They've got to turn around and locate you and figure out, because sometimes backgrounds are poor. They don't, you know, can't find you, you know. I've got to where I train a lot in white now. People are going to laugh because I'm I'm not a field trialer. I don't claim to be, but I do believe that if I'm going to give a correction on a cast, I better dang well know that my dog saw me. And that's made a big difference in my training because I know I gave you that cast. I know you saw it. And so here's your punishment for not taking it. So, but, but slow down. Yeah. Slowing down is a big one, but I think, to answer your question, there's two components to it. One is picture recognition. It, it, it's concepts. A slot blind is two things, you know, uh, uh, two trees, two bushes, two cones, two chairs, two cars, whatever it is. And a dog eventually learns how to picture that and know that they got to go between it. So the best way to teach a slot blind is to teach a dog how to recognize one how to pick it out in the field and you'll have much better success when you give that cast because as they turn and they see that slot, they're going to go for it on their own. Not because you not, I mean, some of you are going to have to direct them into that slot, but mine, I hope recognize the picture right. and attack the concept. And so I start out close on slots. I may run the same blind three times and I start out maybe 10 yards from it. And once that while they're running it and they get through the slot and back 50 yards, let's say, I'm I'm walking backwards so that when I meet them, now I'm 50 yards from the slot and I'm going to send them right through it again. And while they take off, I'm backing up again and I rerun it from 100 yards. And so they learn to picture that and they learn to find it on their own. And I don't have to force them into it. That's so I cool. Yeah. So cool. I, I bring him up a lot, but shout out Dan Crow because he stands behind me in training. 
and what I'll get to what I think is my five, six, eight, ten count, whatever it is I feel like I need to give the dog in my head. And mm-hmm. it, it, no matter what, no matter how many times I think I've gotten to my count, when I give the cast, I hear Crow in the back, slow down. I was like, Dan, how much yep. slower do you want me to go, man? But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's useful, you know? And, uh, and that's why I like training with, with groups because you get that, you, you get that help. I'll tell you a, a really cool thing that helped me even learn more about slowing down. When I went to do the SRS collegiate, that uh, my sons back in the day when they were going to college, mm-hmm. um, I got to to go with them up there. And and the way it works, the format is the college student runs the dog, but you are their handler. You can stand behind them and help them and coach them at the line. Oh, that's cool. So something my my youngest was having trouble realizing how slow he needed to be to cast. And so we worked out a format and he'd blow a whistle and he was not allowed to cast until what would happen was he'd blow a whistle and that I would watch that dog turn around and I would wait until the dog got in a sat and I could tell by the dog's expression that the dog had looked at him and was waiting for the cast. And then I would kind of say behind him real slowly, one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then he would have to say three, 1,000 out loud and then he could cast. So he learned that rhythm and he started getting in that rhythm and it would be the same thing, blow whistle, one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And then I'd be quiet and he would go three, 1,000. And then he'd give the cast and, and just set up a nice rhythm for us. And ever since then, I've actually, I count in my head every time I blow a whistle. I do the same thing still. It's awesome. Cool. So um, having three kids between us, we have definitely <laughs> noticed that it can be difficult to be out running the hunt test circuit and still having time with your family and quality home life. So, man, you guys got started whenever your kids were so little and with three. So talk to us a little bit about the you, the price of being on the competition circuit and the way you have balanced that strain on your marriage and your family life and your your home life. Well, it's easy to lose perspective. I lost perspective many times and luckily I had a wife that was forgiving and would keep me, you know, seeing my ways, you know, the, 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 where I wasn't doing this as a father or this as a husband, I needed to be better about this. And so I, I definitely could not have done it on my own. I probably would have, you know, just gotten so wrapped up with dogs and, and things that I would have probably lost my family if it hadn't been for her. And she kept me grounded. She, you know, made me realize, and the older I've gotten, obviously, the more I've realized how important family is. And the dogs come and go, but the family is always there. And so you can win this and you can win that. But when you go home and you get in your bed by yourself, nobody cares anymore. So to come home to a family that's happy to see you and a wife that, that missed you and, and, you know, really glad to have you home. It was a great feeling. So balance is, is what creates the the happiness for, for a dog trainer that's married. You've got to make time for family and you've got to give up those weekends here and there. And, you know, the trips that, that you really want to go on, you know, for, for this or that dog or whatever, sometimes you got to give them up and just realize that the family needs you just as much. Do you want to add anything to it? 
I couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote that answer out. <laughs> well, I'm I'm taking notes over here. Thank you, Rody. <laughs> but uh, I actually uh, I actually have a tattoo that I uh, not many people know I have tattoo, but I wanted something to look at every day to remind me of the balance that. I need to have in my life in order for me to be happy. And it's the yin yang sign. And it's got on one half of the yin yang is a dog print. And on the other half of the yin yang is a human handprint. And it just tells me that my enjoyment and love of the dogs needs to be balanced with my human family too. That's cool. That's awesome. Well, of everything you guys have talked about tonight, it kind of comes back to one theme and that's balance. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. You know, this this coming fall, I'm going to be guiding full time up in Oklahoma, uh, ducks, deer, ducks and geese. And Allie mm-hmm. and I have talked about it at length and just like, you know, should we, can we this and that and so forth and so on. So this this particular part of the episode kind of hits home because this is a in-depth conversation that we have quite a bit. You know, it's a long way to be be away from home for a long amount of time. So I, I'm really appreciating this particular part of the, of the episode. <laughs> so, but, um, I kind of hate to get out of that, but, um, the next question is, you know, so you've been, excuse me, you've been so successful in so many different venues, uh, be it hunt tests, super retriever series, field trials. What tips would you have for us on how to train the all around dog that excels in all of these areas. Cause I mean, I've had people say you can't, you can't hunt a hunt test or a field trial dog and so forth and so on. So what, um, what tips would you have for us on being able to, to train one that excels all the way around? Well, you know, there's going to be, you know, not every dog can, can make a great hunting dog. Right. Um, not every dog can make a great field trial dog. I always, you know, I was never meant to be a basketball player. <laughs> I was just not built for it. And uh, no matter how much I practiced, I just couldn't get good at it. Um, but there were other things that I could do good, you know. So the the most important thing is, and we've said it again, you're going to hear it again, is the foundation. Yeah. If you don't have a solid foundation, um, the rest is just not going to happen. It's just not, you can stick band-aids on stuff and, and, and try to fix it. But if, if your dog can't obey the sit command, then you shouldn't even be doing anything else. You'd be just working on that. And so have a good foundation, but more importantly is train a higher standard. Try to always, if you're going to be running, uh, a junior test, be training at a senior level before you go run a junior test. Don't don't go to a junior test hoping you're going to pass. Go to a junior test going, my dog's doing really good and could probably pass the senior test, but I'm going to go run junior right now because I know we're plenty ready for that. Yeah. Um, don't go run a master test if they're doing mediocre senior work because all you're teaching your dog when you go to a test is, look, you can behave all you however you want here. You know, because I can't get on to you and you can do whatever you want. It's like taking a kid to a candy store. You know, if you're going to, if your eventual goal is to have an SRS dog, then you need to be trained at a really high level. You know what I mean? You, you don't need to be, you know, running anything until the dog's at least two 
because there's so much time that takes place in training to get a dog to close to that level. So I've learned over time and things change. You know, my methods five years ago probably don't look a lot like they do today because I'm always trying to adjust and, and improve and make changes. Um, I train a lot now on longer marks. Um, I do a lot more water work than I used to do. I run long blinds, super long blinds. I, if I can't control my dog at 300 yards, then, you know, there's no way I can control them at 400. So I should be training at 400. Um, if you want to run a hunt, be able to really run a dog on a good master blind, a hundred yards, then they should be training at 200 yards. You know what I mean? For sure. So don't be afraid to, to stretch them, stretch them out and get them way out there. Um, I always say distance erodes control. The further they are out there, the less control you're going to have on them. So if you want to have control on them at a short, short distance, then be able to control them at a long distance. What do you want to say? What would you say some of the best attributes are as far as a well-rounded dog goes? So like Kaizen, what, why is he such a good all-around dog? Um, I mean, I feel like I mean, he's a very talented dog, but he's a team player. He's coachable. Yeah. He has a good balance. <laughs> you know, the balance really does. I mean, he's, he, you can see, and I mean, Kaizen, his eye contact, he, all of in his puppies, all of his puppies have eye contact, like no other dog. And when you have a dog that has great eye contact, you know, that dog is ready for whatever you want to whatever you're going to teach it. If they're looking away and they're avoiding and they're not paying attention to you, then you know that they're not giving you a hundred percent. And so, you know, Kaizen is a very well-rounded dog and he can go, he can run for anybody. Yeah. And he's just, he's very balanced. He's got, I call it, I call it, he's got that put me in coach. Look, (laughs) you know, he's in the home block. He's looking at you and he's staring at you and he goes, let's go. I'm ready. Put me in coach. Yeah. And that's the kind of dog that you want to go to the line with. If you got one that's, you know, not one to look at you or maybe doesn't have a lot of, you know, desire to get hard to get out there, you're, you're going to be, you know, it's not going to make a well-rounded dog. If you've got a dog that's sniffing the ground and, and just really tearing up the holding blind to get up there, you're, you're going to have some trouble. Mm-hmm. So a, a, a good, well-rounded dog is a dog that can train at a very high level and then lay on your couch at night. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, Kristen, you and I both, I feel like, are very passionate about breeding. You know, we've talked thus far a lot about training specifically, but this is a really good transition, I think, into breeding. Um, you know, we've talked about the fire breathing dragons, and Rody, I think you touched on that um, a lot of what's been bred into Labradors nowadays is go, 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 because the higher pressure trainer can handle them. They don't ever have to yeah. say good dog. But it seems like you guys have had a lot of success with the balance dog. And again, we go back to balance. You know, it's not just balance in training and communication, but it's balance in temperament also. What's your opinion on that, Kristen? I completely agree with you on that. I mean, we have our goal every time that we do a breeding is just to find balance. So if we have a female that's a much softer dog, very, very coachable, but very, you know, timid, we're going to try to find, um, a stud that's going to be have a have more energy, have more drive to them, and try to find meet them and hope that the puppies are going to meet in the middle. 
you know, I, the whelping, so we whelp litters for our clients. We aren't breeders, but we do um, whelp litters for our clients. And um, we started it back in 2008. And um, I actually love, I love the, the, the breeding side of it and actually getting to see these puppies at about four weeks old already starting to be coachable. I can actually work with them um, on eye contact. Um, I can actually start, I'll, I'll put a whole litter of puppies in there, in there, and I'll start treating the ones that are sitting. I'll just start giving them a little tiny treat for the ones that are sitting. And within five minutes or so of four to five week old puppies, the majority of the litter is actually sitting because they're figuring out that the treat is coming every single time. And um, let so- me say it, it is crazy because I'll go into the puppy room and I'll make sure something's not wrong. I'll look over the edge and they're all sitting there looking up at me. There could be eight <laughs> of them or 10 of them. And they're all just sitting there going, I want my treat. <laughs> That's really cool. That's free free shaping, I think is what they call that, right? Yes. And so, you know, I enjoy starting them at, a, you know, starting them at the four, four week or so mark. Um, and I can see very quickly which ones are going to be the most independent, which ones are going to be more like one parent or the other parent. Um, but our goal really is, is just to find a balanced dog that can actually lay on the couch and then the next day go run the SRS crown championship. And we have, we have two or three of them that lay on our couch that do that. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the so, sweet spot. Cause nobody wants a dog that it's only purpose is to be a hunting dog nine, you know, and then the other nine months out of the year, what do you do with it? Nobody wants that. Right. They, right. What they want is exactly what you're describing. And I think that you guys have become such better breeders. And I know you're not a breeder, but you've you've become so good at pairing dogs because of the training aspect. You see what works. You see what meshes well together. And then you start to go, oh, when we put these together, we're producing something that's really looking at you and really paying attention as really a team player. Yeah. Right, exactly. And on our website, it talks about how our goal is is to better the breed. That's that's what you know. That's where you know there's a there's a lot of breeders that are out there. Definitely not all of them, but there are a lot of them out there that are out there for the wrong reason. They're just doing it to bring in a paycheck for Um, purpose versus for profit. Yes, and so um, our goal is is to better the breed and to build more well-balanced dogs that can play the whole game. Um, and uh, so, I mean, and it, it's pretty crazy because he wanted to start up this, you know, whelping these these puppies. And I had no idea what it was actually going to do because we're able to, in a sense, like we'll have, we only, we we do some silent litters, which are litters for people that, um, that, we, that are not our clients. But for the most part, we do all our clients. So we've, we've trained the female and we've trained the male all the way up. So we know the strengths and weaknesses of those dogs from the start to finish. And so we make sure that we just try to match that up and, and find a well balance between the two of them. And it seems to be working. Yeah. It's been, it's been terrible for me though, because (laughs) every time, Every time she pairs a breeding, I'm like, ooh, I'd really like a puppy out of that breeding. Yeah. I think I'm up to how like, many you have now. I'm up to like five or six. <laughs> 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 <With a problem. laughs> 
Yeah. That's the hard part. It's hard for me because I remember, you know, training this dog or that dog. And then I'm like, man, that dog was really talented at a young age. And, Ooh, that, you know, the other half was really talented too. Gosh, can you imagine them two together? Wow. <laughs> you know, so it makes it hard to pass on some of these litters. Well, not my fault. Kristen, <laughs> if my memory serves me correctly, you didn't really want to get into to whelping litters and stuff, right? Initially? No, I really, I mean, I just didn't know what, what I was getting myself into. And I'm kind of one of those people that I don't like to fail at things. I'm kind of a perfectionist and working on that constantly within myself and just trying to set goals to have imperfect progress instead of trying to be a perfectionist. But um, when we started, I just didn't feel confident enough in the situation um, to be able to make the decisions that I wanted to make to bring out, to get the best dogs. Um, but um, over time and just educating myself and and really learning the litters and just really you know, spending the time with the litters and recognizing how much you can actually do with a litter at such a young age. Um, She's gotten really good at recognizing their personalities at a young age before they even go home. And I, I can give you a prime example because she, we had this breeding that I really wanted a puppy out of. And, and I told her which one I wanted. And she said, you're crazy. That dog is wild. I'm like, no, I got this. I can handle this. And her name ended up being Twister because she is wild and she was dead on. I mean, the dog has no stop in her and just constantly busy. It's really hard to even, you know, have her around because she's just busy, busy, busy all the time. Yeah, that was purple collar and I wanted to take pink collar. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was going to be my point with that question was it was something that I, I thought you, if I remember the story correctly, you were like, I don't know about this. And now you have become like the puppy queen. Yeah. Aw, so thank you. You're welcome. I enjoy it a lot. I'm I'm glad I did it. I'm really glad I did it now. Well, I'm curious about something as far as breeding goes. Um, I've heard some trainers or handlers, whatever you want to call them, say that the dogs now are not as hot or they're quote unquote softer than the dogs of say 10, 15, 20 years ago. And now I still see and, and, and hear about and train with some really hot bred, just fire breathers. But I hear that quite a bit. Well, oh, the dogs these days just aren't, they're, they're softer than they used to be. They're, they're, they can't handle the pressure anymore. And that gets me curious because I've never been able to get an answer out of them when I ask the people that say this, the dogs are softer now. Is it something that's being bred out of them? Is it, are people finally realizing, or are some people finally realizing that breeding for balance is the better option? Or is it just one of those evolution things where the dogs nowadays are just not quite as, quote, hot as they used to be? I hear that a lot from, from mostly just from older people trainers <laughs> trying to be as respectful as possible, <laughs> you know, but it, I just, I've never been able to get a straight answer out of that question. And I don't know if there is a straight answer. You and I have talked about this a little bit, Allie, and it's just like, well, you know, people realize that you need to breed for balance more than anything. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm the perfect person to answer this question, just because we don't get a lot, a large range of 
types of dogs in here. So, you know, a lot of our dogs that we get in here come from our puppy program, honestly. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if I got a lot of the field trial, pure field trial lines in here, I might be a little more educated on that. But I think from my limited experience that you're probably right. And the reason I think you're right on, on that belief is because I think the methods of old school were were heavy force faced. And so you had to have that that hard charging, they can take anything kind of dog in order to make it through that training. Yes. But nowadays our methods are more fair, they're more uh positive and negative. You know, you get the you get the the punishment, but you get the reward. Um the dogs don't have to be so bullheaded anymore. Right. They can actually have a workable, trainable personality and still be successful. And that's just my thought on that. I don't know that I'm I have enough information to really have an opinion on it, but the 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 my feeling on it, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right. I got you. Whenever we first started back in 2006, the way that our force fetch program was, we didn't have a hundred percent of the dogs be able to make it through that program because that, you know, that's all, that's all we knew and that's what we were doing. And as it evolved, I don't actually call it force fetch anymore because I don't actually like to compare our program to force fetch because the old school force fetch is nothing like what we do now. So we call it formal fetch. You'll catch somebody around, some people around here sometimes calling it force fetch, but to be honest, because there are such better ways to do it than the old school force fetch. So when I first started that, I could probably get 75 or so percent of the dogs through the table work, no matter whether the dog had drive or not. It was just the, it was just the methods that I knew and then started to evolve. And it was start, it went along with the whole love languages thing and recognizing where the dogs are at. And so it, evolved into I call it the formal fetch because it's a four to six week program and we meet the dog where they are and help them gain confidence in what it is. There's still force, but it's a completely different way of formally fetching them, teaching them how to fetch. So we can do I can I can a hundred percent dogs, I can teach them how to formally fetch anything that I want them to. Um, but when we first started, it was it was probably like seven. I think it was probably about 70, 75% of them. So in saying that with what you said is I think that the ones that were in the field were the fire-breathing dragons because the other ones just didn't make it through right. on the table. Right. Well, and when we talk about so, that, you know, we we probably have some listeners that don't understand the difference between old school force fetch yeah. and, and Clear, up for to me, you know, I don't know every detail of your program for sure, but your force fetch, in my opinion, is is a big part of what makes you guys exceptional. I think it is so different and so outside of the box and so much, in my opinion, better than the traditional methods. So the old school way was so pressure based. Pinch the crap out of a dog's ear till it mm -hmm. yelped. And then when it opens its mouth, shove the dowel in. Right. And so right. the the thought process behind that is make the dog insanely uncomfortable until it tries all these different methods to turn the pressure off 
and eventually figures something out that makes it stop. Well, if you have a dog that's not willing to try 37 different things, maybe it's only willing to try five things and then go, well, you just don't like me. Clearly, I can't do anything right. And so I'm just going to sit here and eat the pressure because I don't know what else to do. And so you had a lot of washouts from that style of heavy pressure force fetch. And that's why the fire-breathing dragon became the popular dog to see in retriever training was because they were willing to try 57 things and maybe 37 was going to be the one that got the pressure to turn off. Right. But what you guys have created is a program that's not pressure, 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 pressure. It's teach and reinforce. Look, I'm going to show you what I want. Then I'm going to reward you when you do it right. And then I'm going to just phase out my help until you're doing it on your own. And you're producing a dog that wants to go to the ground and fetch multiple items, just like you've said, because it's working with you and for you. And it's fun. And, you know, it's not it's not a oh, we're not forcing. Like you said, there's still amount of a, a certain amount of force in there. But by the time you're using force, the dog already knows what's expected of it. And so it's simple to just do the right thing and the pressure goes away. Yeah. Right. They, they, they eventually learn that it's not optional. They, they have to do it. Mm-hmm. But they have opportunity to do it successfully without going that hard pressure route. So, yeah. And it makes, you talked earlier about the dogs who are thinkers versus doers. Those thinkers can become successful. And those, I feel like those thinkers are the ones who figure out the pattern. You know, when, Rody, you were talking about the slot blind, the thinkers are the ones that go, oh, two items over there. I'm supposed to run between those maybe a little faster than the doers. So your methods have really made the thinkers become a lot more successful. Yeah. Well, you pretty much nailed that. Yes, you did. <laughs> yep, that's exactly right. I'd I like to think I'm a student of the game, and you guys are just doing such an exceptional. Like, you're a cheater. You've gotten to train with them before. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just got to say thank you guys so much for being so open. You know, I really wanted Luke to bring that up whenever we did his episode and talk about how he met you and just followed you around to hunt test. Because again, you've just always, both of you have been so open with your knowledge and understanding. And I just really appreciate the amount of time that I got to spend with both of you learning all of this really well, cool you. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah, you. And, I appreciate and Luke was one of those rare gems, one of those those people that just can't get enough information. Um, he's, he, he is always learning, constantly consuming information and he'll take it from anybody. He, he literally would, would listen to anybody at a hunt test, at a field trial. If he could pick up a tidbit of information, he, he will, he will do it. Yeah. So this has been awesome. We had so many questions for you guys, and uh, this was kind of just the tip of the iceberg. So we're really excited about maybe having you back on next week and asking you a few a few more questions because I feel like we're going to have even more now. We posted on the Facebook yeah. page. Well, I've got one here. So Chris Lamb, uh, him his dog Duke. He he asked me mm-hmm. what makes an SRS competitor. That's his question. And I guess he's talking about the dog or the handler, or or I get to talk about both. Which one do you think it is, probably? Well, our conversation that followed was that's my question for Rody. Um, just be sure to mention Duke. <laughs> so that's all he said. <laughs> so let's let's Duke. cover both. 
I would say as a handler, um, you have to be very versatile, very versatile. Um, You've got to be able to train um, multiple levels and and be creative in your setups because, you know, the SRS incorporates all the different games, field trials, you know, HRC, hunting setups, hunt savvy. So, you know, every trainer, every SRS competitor definitely has their strengths and weaknesses. And I can remember years ago, um, back when I was running HRC pretty consistently, um, I couldn't wait till we got to the hunt savvy or the HRC portion because um, I knew that was going to be where I made up ground. And I absolutely hated the field trial setups because I always lost ground there. Right. And so I started learning, well, you big dummy, you need to make your field trial program better. You know, you need to make your dogs better at field trials. So that's what we've strived to do in the last few years is really strengthen that side. So if you really want to be an SRS competitor, you've got to be able to know how to train all those different games, train the dog for those games. Right. Um, You got to have a dog that can swing with a gun because there's a lot of the setups in the SRS where if your dog doesn't see the bird, uh, it's going to hurt. <laughs> and if they're not swinging with that gun barrel and watching the field, then they're they're going to miss that bird. But you also got to have a dog that can sit at the line, you know, and, and see that white coat out there 400 yards, throw that bird, you know, and, and look at the path that they've got to take to get there and go, okay, I need to hit these two pieces of water and, and I need to fight this hillside and challenge this crosswind to get there, you know, and make, make calculations at the line while they're thinking about it. Um, but as far as like the dog itself being an SRS competitor, um, honestly, you need to start out your dog at a young age. And, and this isn't a, a, a firm. I've got plenty of hunt test dogs that I converted to the SRS that proved to be very competitive and very good. But I think your best chances, if you really want to be, take the easiest path, is to train your dog at a young age for field trials and then convert them over to the hunt test game later. Give them a good solid two years of field trial experience, of, of going long and, and learning those concepts at a distance, and then you can bring them, you can reel them in, and, and it'll be much easier of a transition than the other way. Right. So overtraining, is that kind of what we're talking about here? Uh, training at a very high standard. The pro level has always been competitive. There's a lot of good people out there running it, but the amateur level lately is just incredible. The the amount of talent and the amount of of uh, you know people out there running it that are good. I mean, there's a there's a pro from Louisiana. I mean, an amateur, sorry, from Louisiana, Ron Anderson, who's been running his dog against us in the open division. Um, and, and doing freaking good and beating me, beating a lot of my dogs. And that just is a testament to how good the knowledge and the training and the breeding and the information that's out there nowadays for an amateur to sit back and learn and, and be competitive at that level. It's out there, folks. You just got to look for it and, and find someone you can train with that is, is a good handler and, and can teach you. And I'm, you know, I've, I love teaching people. And so I've always enjoyed that. I've trained many trainers and I've trained many owners and I, I just love it. I got you. Well, you may have just answered this last question, but this last question, well, next to last question, but this for both of y'all, um, what advice, what 
tidbit tip, whatever you want to call it, would you give to a young, a young handler that's maybe not sure about getting into the hunt test, field trial, whatever game that they want to choose, what advice would you give to them for somebody just getting into this? Let's say they've got a raw junior level pup and they're, and they're wanting to get into this a little bit heavier. What, what would you say to them? You and Kristen. I would say train at a high standard. Um, there's, there's so many people that get started and they start out at such just kind of a, uh, I don't, I hate to use the word sloppy because it's not, it's not their fault. They just don't know any better. Right. There's, there's a lot of methods out there. Um, a lot of, of trainers out there that are really at a high level, especially in Texas. There's a lot of good trainers in Texas. Go find one and throw birds for them or work for them or spend your, your weekends or your vacation or whatever you can learning from them and watching them. Um, if you can emulate somebody, this goes back to something I always told my, my owners when they said they wanted to join a club. I would always tell them, you know, hey, I want to go join this retriever club or that retriever club. And I always tell them that the person that comes up to you and is the first one to tell you how you should be training your dog is probably the last one that you need to be taking advice from. Go find that person who is up there with their dog and you like the way their dog looks and you like the way they carry themselves and you like the the, the professionalism and the, and the way that they are just clean and crisp. And that's the person you need to go ask questions because they're they're probably not going to force their information down your throat. You're going to have to pull it out of them. And that's the good that's the good person that you want to get information from. So train at a high standard and use your time to find resources to make you better. Right. You said something, and it kind of reminded me of something I, I heard recently that was, it's not about how much time you spend with a dog. It's about how intentional you are in the time that you spend. Oh, thousand percent, thousand percent. You can, you can come out and say, you know, if a trainer works for me and goes, well, I worked all my dogs today. Well, you know, yeah, I could take them out and throw three marks and put them on a truck and say the same thing. But did I really push them a little bit? Did I teach them something new today? That's when you know you worked all your dogs that day. Yeah. Yeah. We went over this in episode one, train with purpose. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And that's one of the hardest things I think I find every day as long as I've been doing it is I come out to the field and I'm going, okay, what have I not done lately? What do I need to teach them? What concept have I not covered lately that I need to cover? And a lot of times hunt tests are great for me because I, I'll go that weekend and I'll run three series and I'll make notes on my phone and I'll be like, I need to do a wipeout bird. I, my dogs are not good at wipeout birds or uh, I haven't been, you know, their line manners are not good. I don't like their line manners. You need to go back and work on that. And so the next week I have motivation all week to be setting up stuff, training with a purpose, because I'm going to strengthen those areas. Um, it's, I have a long list, a big, long sheet where I have every concept and every, you know, wipeout birds, short birds, um, crisscross birds, hip pockets, all of the concepts that we see at tests. I got a long list of them. Mm -hmm. And I go back and look at that list and go, okay, if I've done this concept, nope, it's been over a month since I've done this concept. I need to do this tomorrow. And so it's hard because you got a lot, a big level of dogs, dogs at all different kinds of levels and being able to train that concept for all those dogs is hard, but that's why you're a trainer. 
exactly. And it, this may be splitting hairs, but you know, train with purpose. But if you go to a test and you know, if you had an issue with a hip pocket concept or a wipeout bird or a slot blind or something like that, you train with a purpose, but train what you're seeing. If you're seeing an issue, don't move on to the next thing and create another issue. Train what you're seeing, get through that, and then move on. Well, and it's just like what you said earlier, you know, on that slot blind, I'm going to start close and then I'm going to move back and then I'm going to move yeah. back and then I'm going to move back. Yeah. Don't just put your dog in a situation and then burn it up when it makes the wrong decision. Teach it. Yeah. And then reinforce yeah, break the it decision. Down. Yeah. Yeah, break, break it down. That's simplified. That's what a lot of people don't realize is they go out and they set up these slot blinds at 100 yards and they run them. You know, they go Monday, they go do a slot blind. Tuesday, they go to a slot blind. And by Friday, they're still pulling their hair out because their dog is not going through slots. But if you will go up at 10 yards and send them through it and back up, send them through it again, back up, send them through it again, and then do the same blind the, the next day in the same place, your dog will start to recognize those pictures. And er everything, every concept we do, a hip pocket, throw the long bird as a single first and then throw the short bird and then throw both of them. You know, break it down into simple pieces. Don't throw a hip pocket five days in a row and be frustrated at the end of the week because your dog can't figure it out. Yep. You're, you're, you're making them take too big of bites. Yep. Break it down into small pieces simplify or clarify and i i personally think there's a a difference in the two you know maybe correct me if i'm wrong there if you if you think there's if there's not a difference but to me there's simplifying and there's clarifying make it very clear to the dog what it is you want that's right set them up for success exactly right miss Kristen, do you have anything that you would like to share with uh with a newcomer or a young handler Imperfect progress is one of the things, like whenever I'm training trainers up, one of the things that I constantly am telling them is just like we were just talking about, simplify back. Um, we had a situation today with a one of the trainers was working with a little, um, he was working with a Cocker Spaniel and he's working on recalls off leash. And the dog, you know, obviously wanted to come over to us because we had another dog with us and we were just way more. We had one girl that worked for us and she said, you need to be sexier than a squirrel to these dogs. <laughs> and I thought that was the funniest thing. So like, <laughs> she told us that she's like, as a trainer, you've got to be sexier than a squirrel. So you've got to. So we obviously in, in this specific situation with this Cocker Spaniel, he kept wanting to come over to us and we eventually got him to go back over to his trainer and then he wanted to call the call it and just not work on it. And I said, we've got to, we got to keep working on this, you know, working through those type of situations like that to help give clarity, just like you were saying that clarity, um, simplify a situation and do repetition after repetition, even in the foundation side of it. Um, so that the dog has clarity in what your expectations are in it. And, right. I struggle with perfection myself personally. And one of the things I have to tell myself all the time, every time I get a dog out is that my goal is in every session is to have imperfect progress because they're not capable of being perfect and I'm not capable of being perfect. Mm -hmm. So our goal is, is to have imperfect progress in every session. So remember where your baseline is from the session before and they try to have imperfect progress during the next session. Another thing I tell new trainers that are working for us too is after they finished a group of dogs that have come through, I'm like, okay, what did you see in these dogs that you consistently 
that you want to see better in your next group and write it down and set that goal for your next round of dogs. Cause you can do that. I still do it. You know, I was like, you can do that for the rest of your life as a dog trainer. You can always get better and recognize the things that you need to work on. Like sometimes it's a dog, it's a personality thing in the dog, but if you see the same thing in three to four dogs, then it's actually on you. Yeah. There's something you're doing that you need to work on. Absolutely. That's so good. That is good. Well, we're about out of time, but I have one more question. I promise it's the last one. <laughs> You're good. Kristen mentioned, um, excuse me, the SRS crown championship earlier. And it reminded me of this. When Rody did sport dog start making and carrying bow ties <laughs> and where, and where can I get one? <laughs> And for, and for those of y'all that have no idea what I'm talking about. Now you're going to have to post the picture. I, well, so I, I posted a little, like a little promo thing earlier. It's like a collage um, with the Under the Arc logo and just a couple of little pictures of Kristen and Rody. And one of them, I, I stole the picture of y'all at that banquet or whatever it was. And Rody's got that whistle bow tie on. And I've, I've <laughs> ever since I saw it, I've been just envious of it. <laughs> call me a hillbilly i don't care i want one so bad you all start you selling them in your in an yes, etsy shop yes because y'all y'all have got to put that in the merch line like seriously <laughs> so 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 you have to know what what that's about so the, the, give us the SRS, backstory yeah the, the srs crown championship um has uh a big Big hats and bow ties. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's called big hats and bow ties, and it's their opening ceremony. And when they first started doing it, I thought this is the silliest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> Let's focus on the dogs, but <laughs> it turned into a really cool event because it celebrates a year of hard work by the handlers, by the owners. Um, we've traveled thousands of miles, run lots of series, had some success, had some failures. And it's a chance for us all to sit around, have a good laugh, um, see everybody's uh, costumes they wear. Because they, you know, you dress up your dogs, you dress up yourselves, you wear the biggest, the women wear the biggest, craziest hat they can wear, like a Kentucky Derby type of thing. Mm -hmm. And the guys wear whatever kind of cool bow tie they can come up with. Well, she came up with the bit the bow tie thing and i thought it was the greatest thing i've ever heard of yes and most people probably would have been embarrassed to wear it i was thought it was the coolest thing anybody had and i still can't believe we didn't win i think something happened there what was, that's rigged rigged we should have won yeah. you should have <laughs> but yeah so at the in the end of may um rnt calls is have they have a call of palooza over in stuttgart arkansas every year and uh i was as we're getting through the episode, I was thinking about that, uh, that dog whistle bow tie. I was like, man, I'm going to glue two duck calls inserts together and make a, <laughs> make a bow tie out of that and wear a, a tuxedo t-shirt, a duck call bow tie down main street, Stuttgart and, and just, and just yeah. make a statement, man. <laughs> it was, it was really funny because at the event, at the, the big hats and bow ties event, there was a lot of local people there putting on, you know, the food and the, 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 the different things. And, they I'd walk out by them and they wouldn't look twice at me. But if anybody had ever had a dog and had a whistle and I walked by them, they saw that thing and instantly you could see their eyes light up and go, Oh my gosh, that is cool. Yeah, absolutely. Because they knew what it, 
you know, they knew what a dog whistle was, but some of the people didn't. So it yeah, was it's neat. such a creative idea. Absolutely. Well, uh, do you know yet if y'all are, I mean, I know we have, you haven't really even gotten your, uh, your test season going, but do you know, will we be seeing y'all at Alamo's AKC this year? Um, the plan is to be there. Yeah. We've got, um, I think seven master tests on the schedule and 14 SRSs. So we're going to be real busy. Cow. Well, I'll have the brisket yeah. and pulled pork ready for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I love going to y'all's test. Y'all, y'all put on a really good test. I think most people that think about, going to Alamo, the first thing to think about is just how far it is to get down there, but it's not a bad drive yeah. and y'all do the, the grounds are awesome. Um, y'all put on a really good test. The, the organization's there, everything is there, you know, for, for a really good test. So if anybody out there listening has not been to an Alamo test, freaking sign up for it. Cause y'all have a blast, <laughs> man. We appreciate that shout out. Really? We really do. But, uh, man, we really appreciate y'all both for being on this evening. Uh, babe, where can they, where can they find this podcast? Yeah. You can find us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and we'd love it if you would like share and subscribe. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you, Kristen and Rody. Thank you all. Welcome. Thank you. Y'all right, have a good night. Be safe in your travels. Thank you. All right, bye-bye.